Thank you very much for joining us for our most recent Tech Law 10. This is an important milestone. This is number 200. This is Eric Sinrod with Dwayne Morris, as always, joined by Jonathan Armstrong of Cordery. And we have our special guest making a return. He was with us on number 100, the chairman of Dwayne Morris, John Sirocco. John, do you have any initial comments before we proceed? Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me back for number uh, 200, and I look, uh, I look forward to number 300, hopefully. We hope so, too. So the format today is we're going to each, Jonathan and I each have selected three topics that we've covered during podcasts 100 to 200 over the last couple of years. So, Jonathan, why don't you start with your first topic of note? Yeah, thanks very much, Eric, and thanks for joining us, John. Um, I think my first topic is something that I think is dominating minds here in Europe, the new general data protection regulation. So we've talked about it on a few of our podcasts in the last 100. It's obviously consequential changes to privacy law. I was at Infosec last week, the big sort of trade show for the information security community, and it was the talk of the town one of the vendors, for example, had had a bus re-sort of logoed as the GDPR clinic bus that sat outside of the conference. And as I say, almost all of the vendors had some sort of GDPR offering or solution. But one of the things that I thought was worth just a quick two minutes is the ability for legislation like GDPR and its extraterritorial effects to almost provoke trade wars. Now, we had a French official some years ago say that uh, that privacy law and its conflicts with e-discovery were the, the new transatlantic trade war. And obviously, GDPR sets the bar somewhat higher. Some might say that U.S. corporations are unfairly disadvantaged in GDPR because whilst the fines are the same for EU and, e and U.S. corporations, a U.S. corporation that targets EU individuals but doesn't have a foothold in the EU has to have a data protection representative, so somebody who will underwrite their fines, if you like. How that will be enforced, we don't know, but it seems as if the intention of leveling the playing field could have a disadvantageous effect on U.S. corporations. And I guess my worry in, uh, in, in the current environment is whether we need anything else to sort of provoke uh, trade um, restrictions or, or whether it's a time when we should be reaching out to see if there are ways in which we can work together rather than call each other's systems at worst and try and uh, bring in these punishments. I wondered if either of you had any views on that. Well, I can jump in quickly. This is Eric, and that is, and I do think we need to have some uniformity and harmony internationally when it comes to privacy issues. We've had different standards with respect to data flow going between countries. You know, generally speaking, I think Europe has been more strict in protecting privacy. You know, we here, when we're advising in the U.S., we do explain that, you know, good privacy is good business. And privacy is sort of like oxygen for consumers. You know, you don't really notice it until it's gone, and it does need to be protected. John, do you have any comments? 
No, I agree. Uh, I agree with you, and it's a fast-evolving situation. I'm the amateur looking from the outside. You guys have the more expert view on this, but obviously as the person responsible for these kinds of issues within our organization, it seems that these issues keep mounting up. Sorry to put you on the spot, John, but what do you think the visibility is of issues like GDPR with the sort of, you know, heads of uh, of major multinational law firms. Do you think that's somebody on everyone's radar, or, or do you think you're semi-unique in that? I think this is in the process of uh, migrating from the desks of um, those charged with responsibility for information services, IT directors and the like, getting more onto the desks of law firm chairmen as more of the cybersecurity type requirements are infiltrating their way into uh, the profile of engagements we have for clients. So clients are saying to their law firms, we want to hire you to do uh, a, this business transaction. We want to hire you to handle this dispute in court. But first, we want to know internally uh, how you're handling uh, security, how you would be handling our client files, and that thing, I think, is taking it from more of a cloistered area where it's on the desk of a law firm's IT director and putting it more front and center on the desks of people who run law firms because they're seeing there's a linkage between uh, having that under control on the one hand and continuing to add clients and do business on the other hand. Uh, very good point. Thank you. Good question, Jonathan. So uh, it's my number one of three um, is the one story that kept coming back multiple times, probably more than any other story, and that's Ashley Madison. As we know, Ashley Madison is the world's largest adult-oriented website in, in a way. I should say in terms of the number one world website for married people to go and potentially link up with other people. Uh, and at its peak, Ashley Madison had over 38 million quote-unquote anonymous subscribers. And on the website homepage, it said, life is short, have an affair. Well, what was the problem? Well, as we learned, the site was hacked, and those 38 million anonymous users no longer were anonymous. And there were many repercussions. Some marriages broke up as people were outed. Uh, some people actually lost jobs. Uh, believe it or not, in some states, adultery is still illegal. And then it got even more um, intense when we came to learn that some foreign powers uh, obtained the identities of people that used the site and were threatening them, essentially saying, if you do not cooperate with us and turn over state secrets for example, from the United States, we're going to blackmail you. So there were many wrinkles to the story. Um, it was obviously interesting in terms of content and procedure, but it really brought home um, the vulnerabilities we have in terms of information now living out in the wild on the Internet. So um, if either of you have comments on that story, um, love to hear them. I have a quick thought. I was at a conference in Gibraltar this week, and I think, again, it's indicative of the point John just made about this coming to the top of the organization. The conference in Gibraltar was attended by the governor, who not only gave a sort of kickoff speech, 
but he was there for the full day and seemed very engaged. I had a had a chat with him for 20 minutes or so, very engaged in the whole topic. And the chief minister of Gibraltar was there as well, who'd flown back from giving a speech in the UN to, to, to come and, 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 and appear for the second half of the conference. So I think it's definitely at the very top uh, of organisations. And, and Ashley Madison was, was still being talked about at this conference, exactly to your point, uh, Eric, in that it allows people to be compromised. I think it's staggering. You know, one of our clients said, I think that north of 20 people in a large, you know, respectable corporation had signed on to an adultery site using their work email. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously that compromises the organization as well as them as individuals because you know, you know the dark web is, is full of these lists of uh, Ashley Madison users. If they've used the same uh, email and the same password, and that's relatively common, then by the adultery site being compromised, then so is the corporate network. So, um, you know, it's not just something of almost sniggering purient interest. I think it's a real <laughs> vulnerability for, for corporations. If John has a view. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with the case specifically of Ashley Madison, the the reason there's sort of uh, an enhanced attention to that is because of the uh, the nature of the site, uh, potentially embarrassing information. But embarrassing information can take uh, many, many forms. It could take uh, financial information. It could take uh, other personal details that aren't of an explicitly sexual nature. So uh, the whole idea of um, putting out personal data, putting out personal information on the Internet, on sites that you are using because you believe them to be secure, and then learning that those sites or those operators have had a quote-unquote data breach is uh, – is 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 pretty harrowing. I mean, I think uh, you know we've we've seen that story enough times now that people are sort of getting used to hearing that. Maybe they understand all the implications of it. Maybe they don't. But uh, you're you're even hearing it with something as G-rated as major retailers having these kinds of data breaches. What does it really mean? You know, the 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 the, the television news certainly does a good job of. Uh, giving a headline that there's been that kind of data breach, there isn't much analysis provided as to what that might mean for the affected consumers. So, Jonathan, you're number two. Okay. Yeah, my number two is is a topic that I guess we could talk about for a day. But it's this whole uh, issue around um, privacy activism, suspicion of governments, etc., etc. So from the Snowden revelations to the Schrems litigation, and we've talked quite a bit about uh, about Max Schrems case. And, and uh, as many of you know, I sat down and chatted with him in October about where he thought that you know the future of privacy was going and consumer activism against uh, technology and its use, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Remember, it all starts with allegations that Snowden made about the 
uh, activities of the U.S. security services in particular and their uh, viewing of people's uh, material on the Internet and then this individual uh, Austrian um, uh, law student, Max Schrem, started this litigation which led to Safe Harbor, the scheme which was used by many U.S. Corpora uh, corporations to legitimize the transfer of data from the EU to the U.S. It led to that, that collapsing. And I, I thought one of the interesting things that we could discuss in the next couple of minutes is where that goes next. Uh, Schrems uh, and I had quite a good conversation, I thought, about how privacy regulation and fair trade regulation and antitrust uh, you know, regulation can't be seen in isolation, that in some respects they're three corners of the same triangle. And I think that we've had some examples of that more recently, you know, for example, in the uh, European Commission's uh, intervention into a recent merger deal when the organization concerned said that they wouldn't be merging data, and then they did. So what sort of like a privacy issue then gets fired under the, under the antitrust regime? And it's this almost like this complexity of digital regulation with different, uh, as I say, corners of the same triangle, but also this rise of, of very um, uh, intelligent and inventive uh, activists who are using all sorts of different legal arguments and constraints uh, as a crusade against some big businesses and their perceived bad practices. I wonder if either of you had a, had a view in that. So how, have we always had these individuals with a, with a cause that have fought through to conclusion? Well, we've always had uh, we've always had dissident and activist shareholders, but uh, clearly, the ability to magnify their message, just as we have seen political messages magnified, is something that's uh, growing exponentially. And uh, we used to describe those types of uh, conflicts as uh, David and Goliath type battles. Well, uh, David these days has weaponry that's a lot more potent than a slingshot, right? And you really, uh, you really are moving from an era of what used to be uh, 30, 40 years ago, asymmetrical warfare where might uh, equaled right to uh, an environment in which uh, individuals uh, can take on uh, certainly uh, corporate structures, uh, be uh, a dissident shareholder or a dissatisfied consumer, and you can see a very, very real impact. Eric? Thank you. Yes, and I'll pick up on a different strand. You were talking about mergers, Jonathan, and you know we know that when companies now merge, we have to look at the private data they have and what assurances were given to consumers when they collected that data. So uh, if a certain level of privacy uh, protection was promised uh, when a consumer gave information to a company A that then merges with company B, that merged company now still needs to protect data in the same way as originally promised. 
But you make an interesting point about you know, the antitrust implications. And, you know, we're now like living in a world where you can actually have market power uh, when it comes to private data, which is maybe something we should devote to another podcast. It's a very interesting topic. So I'll now move on to my number two, and that has to do with Hillary Clinton's private uh, email server. I remember saying long before the election in one of our podcasts that this issue was going to be the Achilles heel for Hillary Clinton. And I said so regrettably um, because, as you know, I've had cases up to the United States Supreme Court dealing with the transparency of government information under the Freedom of Information Act and other sunshine laws. And I explained that, you know, maybe the intent wasn't uh, malevolent, but the fact was by putting her transactions as head of the State Department on a private email server, the data no longer is being treated as a government record that could be accessible to the public under proper procedures. And it was a recurrent theme uh, that even got to the point of lock her up, lock her up. I mean, it got pretty shrill. But nevertheless, it was the issue of issues that really dogged her in the presidential campaign. Um, and she's not president, is she? So any thoughts, guys? Uh, well, you know, I, I look at it uh, not from a, a partisan standpoint. We all have our own personal views on the um, the outcome of, of the election. I do tend to agree with you that while she did not wind up facing any criminal jeopardy because of what she had done, and I'm not expressing an opinion as to whether she should have or she shouldn't have. That would be an interesting legal issue for a different show or a different type of show. I do think uh, I agree with you that uh, formal prosecution or not, it, it, it certainly took its toll on her from a credibility standpoint and otherwise during the election. Um, I couldn't resist during that whole episode to reflect on the fact that we at our law firm would not tolerate something that she believed was tolerable in her capacity as the U.S. Secretary of State, which is to conduct official business other than through the official electronic channels of the organization. And I can tell you that uh, both uh, I and our firm's general counsel, we are extremely vigilant when people, often by accident or inadvertence, send emails using what they may also own as a parallel Gmail address. Sometimes perhaps they've just hit the wrong button, and the next thing you know, you're talking about firm business, and the person who's emailing you back and forth isn't using the at Dwayne Morris account, but maybe using an at Gmail account. Uh, we make sure that that gets corrected immediately. And we have a very strict understanding for a lot of very good, real, and important reasons that we don't take firm business offline. And yet here you rather implausibly had the Secretary of State of the United States who 
uh, I would think would be dealing in information at least as important and at least as sensitive as a junior associate at Dwayne Morris purposely rooting all of that other than through the official government platform. Um, you know, if someone told you that was happening, you might say, well, I can't believe anybody would do that. He, yet here it was done and it was defended. Pretty, pretty incredible. I agree. I think that's a, a great observation. And I think, um, obviously, we can talk endlessly about whether it was uh, a nation state that went and, and picked up the documents and abused them. And, and we've talked about on podcasts before, I certainly have uh, evidence with my own eyes from a conference I spoke at that exposed the death emails that there's definitely... I'll just say that there's definitely something foreign, non-American, non-English at work. But, but the reality is that, that if you like, uh, to follow on John's thought, that data had already been put in the middle of the street. It wasn't kept within the four walls of the organization. So we can criticize whoever we want to criticize for picking the data up, but it was already left, left vulnerable by... By, by Hillary's actions and those of her team. And I guess I've got two particularly happy memories of that podcast, Eric. First, mm. because you called it correctly, but secondly, because I can still remember standing on the, on the balcony as the sun went down in, uh, in Cornwall, and that's what's getting me through today. I'll be there, uh, uh, back again at the weekend. So it's always uh, the, the more I'm reminded of that sort of happy place, the better for me. And I was sad to have been correct, uh, by the way. So what's what's your number two, uh, Jonathan? I've got number three. Number, number three. Number three. Number three. Excuse me. Yeah, and and it sort of vaguely follows on from the, from the last one in that I think that there's been I think one revolution in my professional life has been how quickly you can become uh, almost a monopoly. And that's particularly the case in some of these new tech offerings. So if you take Uber, for example, they go from almost from nothing to darling to monopoly to hatred in some quarters in, I guess, uh, two or three years when it may have taken, you know, the old industrialists, I don't know, the Carnegies of this world, maybe 65 years to go through that whole whole scope from, you know, beloved uh, monopolist hatred. I'm not, I'm not suggesting Carnegie's hated, but, but, but certainly a very much a monopolist. Um, and, and I think Uber have, have achieved a, a number of things, really. But uh, I guess one of the concerns, if you look at that triangle again, is, first of all, they're a monopolist. Secondly, uh, or a quasi-monopolist in some areas. Secondly, are they uh, behaving fairly with their riders and with their employees in areas like, uh, for example, the allegations that they don't disclose, the fact that they're looking at battery strength, that they're charging female riders more if they're in vulnerable areas. They've had some bad press in the UK for surge pricing for people trying to leave a terror scene. It's fair to say that Uber have reversed those transactions, but they had some, uh, some issues in between. 
and also whether they're properly disclosing the way in which they're using people's data uh, and sweating that. So, so that, you know, that triumvirate, if you like, of fair trade and privacy and, um, and, uh, and antitrust. Uh, and also, I think it's shown us that a lot of these startup businesses don't invest in areas like compliance and, and legal structure, and they grow perhaps too quickly for their own good. And then my slightly tongue-in-cheek comment that I stole off the Internet is that somebody said, well, at least Uber have also achieved one other thing recently. They, they don't, as I understand it, have any C-level executives in post currently. That one of their lead board directors recently resigned and as is well publicized, their CEO is undertaking a period of voluntary suspension. So if nothing else, Uber have succeeded in engineering the first self-driving company. So uh, I wonder if any of you had any views on that. Well, um, I mean, you certainly made an interesting point about how these companies grow so quickly in just, you know, accelerated telescope time as compared to historically. And, you know, here in the Bay Area where I work, we have so many examples of that. In fact, recently I took a trip up to Seattle, and so many of the large buildings in downtown Seattle are now fully occupied by Amazon. Uh, you know, Amazon is now all things in terms of purchasing uh, goods on, on the Internet. Um, obviously, when you talk about Uber, you're, you know, you're referring to press reports, and we're not on the inside, and we're not here to comment necessarily on the propriety of Uber's actions, but it is an example of a company that's grown so fast um, and is you know, valued at billions of dollars, but it also is you know, operating at a loss. Um, John, what is your thought in terms of you know, the rapid growth of these new Internet companies? Well, it's interesting. I, I look at it as sort of a model for for law firms in the following sense. You know, it, it, it is a good cautionary note for law firms that uh, to the extent there is that kind of disruptive innovation or disruptive change that can take hold in the legal industry, uh, two things. It, it will take hold. And the changes that it will produce will be faster than perhaps law firms and their managers are prepared to adapt. And in a way, Uber is a very good example of it. Um, um, there is a client-centric or customer-centric element to the use of uh, Uber that is not dissimilar to the transition that law firms are undergoing. You know, in the old days or older days, uh, a law firm and the associates it operated and partners it operated looked a little something like a commercial fleet of taxi cabs, right? The goal of the law firm was to have customers and all the cabs and all the cabs in motion and after those cab rides were over there was a dollar amount or an amount in pounds that was on the meter and the customer really had to pay it the customer was not in control the operator was and then you would just go get another customer and uh, Uber really reflects a much more customer-centered model or client-centered model that's a lot more like the shift of power 
these days away from law firms to the clients. So I've often said to our lawyers here, there may not be an Uber model per se that is going to challenge law firms, but uh, do please realize that 20 years ago, uh, prosperous owners of big taxi cab fleets probably thought they had an unbeatable business. And look what happened, and look at the speed with which it happened. Interesting perspective. Thank you. All right, so we're now rounding the bend. This is my final number three. Um, probably not too surprising. You know, we're hearing 24-7 nonstop about, you know, Russia investigations on Capitol Hill, right? So what does that have to do with this podcast? Well, you know, partisan issues aside, uh, at bottom, at least 17 of our intelligence agencies have concluded there were efforts made by Russia to meddle and interfere with our most recent presidential election. And we, you know, we've heard about, you know, fake news and what was put out vis-a-vis Russia onto social media that could have influenced people. We're now hearing more recent reports of actual efforts to penetrate our election systems. And it's something worth reflecting on because one thing we think of as relatively sacrosanct as a hallmark of democracy is that if you don't like it in Washington, you can vote and you can put in the representative of your choice as president or in the Senate or in Congress and in local elections too. And now we're learning because of so much that's done now electronically um, as opposed to just putting a hard copy, you know, uh, vote in a ballot box, you know, there can be, you know, potentially mass tampering. Uh, and maybe we're a little bit losing sight of that in these Russian investigations as opposed to, you know, who might have done wrong and who might be obstructing justice as opposed to what's going on and how do we now actually protect democracy in this new cyber uh, era? Gentlemen? I, I think that's a very, uh, you know, wise observation and also very challenging. It, it seems to me that um, I think there's, all, you know, there's always been, since time immemorial, I think, uh, foreign and subversive influence in elections. But it's almost the same side of some of the things that we've been talking about already. It's that technology just makes it all so much easier. And instead of, I don't know, taking the Pony Express around the U.S. and leafleting every saloon bar in town, you can do that you know, virtually in minutes rather than you know, by horse in, in weeks. So it's, it's almost the speed of dissemination that's the change, isn't it, rather than the, than the will to, uh, to influence elections. Yes, and I think uh, one has to, in all things, be careful to define the terms. Um, the, the evidence, such as it is, seems to be uh, much more in the direction of a campaign of what I'll call disinformation than in anything that really invaded the sanctity of the polling place per se. I mean, that is a potential threat, but we have a lot of people, uh, I think, misinterpreting the phrase, the Russians hacked the election, to mean something more basic than 
any of the evidence here suggests was done, and I think some of the best uh, commentary on this has been that uh, you know governments are always uh, playing their little games against each other uh, and sowing little seeds uh, here and there, and uh, at, at least to my knowledge, there's been no um, evidence that any elector here in the United States uh, wanted to vote for one candidate, but somehow the Russians were able to hack into the voting booth or hack into the process and change that vote for a different candidate. Well, I hope you're right. I know that's uh, you know something that's of concern, and hopefully it won't happen in the future. But listen, first of all, we want to thank John Sorota, the chairman of Dwayne Morris, for joining us today for this weekly tech law 10 our number 200 and going strong so thank you again all of you uh listeners for joining us thank you jonathan armstrong for being such a, a great colleague in this ongoing endeavor so we're going to sign off now this has been more like tech law 30 but i think it's been worth it uh, i'm eric sinrod of Dwayne morris you can reach us uh through usual social media which won't be hacked by anybody um and please keep up with us and keep providing thoughts for future podcasts. Uh, any closing thoughts, Jonathan and John? Thanks for uh, having me for number 100 and 200, and uh, we'll see you soon. Jonathan? No, yes, thanks, thanks both. And very insightful, John. I really enjoyed the discussion today. Um, maybe I'll just say I'm Jonathan Bodans, kind of cordycompliance.com. We're going to post the uh, podcast, as usual, on LinkedIn as well. So if anyone's got any comments, they can reach out to Eric or I or post on LinkedIn, and we'll join you. I guess regular service will be resumed in a week or so. Thank you for listening. All right, cheers. And I'm EJ Sinrod at DwayneMorris.com, signing off. Goodbye. Yeah.